0: Future-proof gold from News Talk. Most people who've thought about it for a decent amount of time come to the same conclusion that computers will one day become smarter than us and destroy us all. Uh, just how realistic is this doomsday scenario, though? Well, we may have recently got an idea. Stephen Johnson is an Emmy Award-winning presenter and author of How We Got to Now, and he's been thinking and writing a lot about the idea of superintelligence. He's here to tell us an incredible story. Welcome to the show, Stephen. How are you? I'm very good. This is a subject that we do revisit a bit, because it is one that fascinates me. Can you talk to me a little bit about the concept of
1: superintelligence? Well, it's you know it's been bouncing around for 20 or 30 years. There's this kind of term that sci-fi authors and tech people use called the singularity, which I choose not to use that much because it's developed all this kind of strange new age kind of aura about it. <laughs> but the premise is that as computers get smarter and smarter, they will hit at some point this threshold where they were, will, on fundamental levels, exceed average human intelligence or even extreme human intelligence. And at that point, we will be in a new era where the machines are fundamentally smarter than we are. And many people see this as you know, a kind of utopian scenario where it would be great. We'll be able to solve all these problems because we'll just outsource them to the computers. But a lot of people, and increasingly, large number of people and a lot of smart people are worried about this scenario because at that point we won't be able to understand the computers on some level. And if we give them control over parts of our society, they could turn against us in some way. And that's, as you said, that's been a kind of sci-fi concern for many years, you know, Skynet becoming self-aware, Terminator series and so on. But I think, you know, we're starting to wrestle with it as a real issue now.
0: And I suppose for a long time it's been theoretical, but then there was this incredible experiment at the University of Sussex by John Byrd and Paul Lazell that sort of gave us kind of an insight into the first baby steps of this idea. Can you explain the experiment?
1: So the, the premise that I think a lot of us kind of share about the path to superintelligence is that we will use what we call evolutionary software. So we'll simulate evolution in designing these super smart computers in the sense we'll build a moderately smart computer and go through a series of kind of evolutionary steps where it randomly mutates we select the slightly more advanced version then you randomly mutate it again you select a more advanced version until eventually you evolve this computer that's very smart and we've seen evolutionary software being used in the past and this is this story about these guys at sussex where they we're trying to build something called an oscillator, which is a really important part of any electronics, the kind of clock cycles of a computer, for instance, use an oscillator. And so they they set up a system with a bunch of little transistors and they said, okay, you know, try to evolve this key tool, the oscillator, and it went through a bunch of iterations, it randomly mutated, they selected you know the more advanced versions and eventually it produced this regular oscillating signal and they were like, "Wow, it worked. okay, so how is it doing it? And they went and they looked and, it didn't actually seem to be using any of the transistors in a traditional way that they would have expected and so they're like how is it generating this signal and they finally realized so that let me act-
0: just just before you continue with this story you're talking about two people who built a machine to do a specific task and when they went to investigate how it was done they at first couldn't figure out it at all because it wasn't approaching the problem in any way that humans would ordinarily do it
1: yeah it was as if they were trying to build a metronome, right? They were trying to build something that would output a regular you know, kind of tick-tock rhythm. And they let their system run for a while, and then they started hearing that sound of a metronome. And so they were like, oh great, it invented a metronome. And then they went and they looked and there was no metronome there. (laughs) But it was making the sound of a metronome. And so they couldn't figure that out. And finally they realized that instead of building the metronome, it had actually picked up a regular metronome-like signal from other computers in the room because every computer is emitting, because of its own clock cycle, a little regular kind of rhythmic pulse. And then basically, instead of building a metronome, it had built a radio that was picking up across the room the signal uh, from other computers and was basically hijacking their regular signal. And so it had evolved this completely different solution to the problem and, in a sense, kind of escaped the boundaries. It had jumped over to these other computers in the room to try and figure out a way to kind of solve this puzzle. So it was fascinating, but imagine then you're trying instead of building a metronome you're trying to build a super intelligent computer well it's going to evolve all these strategies that will basically be impossible for us to understand because they will be working on a higher level than human comprehension and that will be amazing and that it will be able to you know cure cancer probably but on the other hand what if we give that super intelligent machine an instruction and it slightly misunderstands our instruction or our ultimate goal and it sets off with its incredible intelligence to you know, implement the solution that we've asked for, but it does it in this way that ends up you know, accidentally wiping out half of humanity, because it doesn't quite understand what the instructions are. And that's, that's hmm. the issue that people are wrestling with when they think about superintelligence.
0: Which I think is a really perfect example when you talk about getting rid of cancer. I mean, there is one very simple way of getting rid of all human cancer, and that is getting rid of all humans. You know, so if the objective is simply remove cancer, the machine might find a very efficient way of doing that that we may not like.
1: Yeah, and I should say a lot of my thinking on this has been shaped by this relatively new book called Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. And, you know, he talks about one scenario like, let's say you have this super intelligent machine that is attached to, you know, nanotechnology. And you say, listen, we want to just optimize life on Earth so that humans, all humans, have kind of maximum happiness. You know, it seems like a good goal, right? We want to. We, hey, we've got this incredibly smart machine. We've been struggling for all of human history to maximize our happiness. We have happiness. I think we all agree on. It's a good thing. So computer, make us all happy. And so the computer's like, great, I know how to do that. I'm just going to create these little nanobots that will, you know, infiltrate everyone's brain on the planet and permanently stimulate their kind of pleasure centers in their brain, rendering us all kind of grinning idiots who do nothing but sit there and smile and can't do anything other than be happy. And the computer's like, right. Cool. Check that box. What do you want me to do next, boss? Hmm. <laughs> and meanwhile, we're entirely incapacitated. So it's. I mean, it sounds like a joke, and on some level, that is a kind of a comic scenario of it. But it's the kind of containment problem of like once you have something that is smarter than you are that you can't understand. How do you, in a sense, keep it in the box? How do you keep it from kind of sneaking out and trying to solve the problems with these kind of unintended approaches that might end up being disastrous?
0: But um, doesn't that sort of underestimate the intelligence of the people who are making these machines in the first place. Let's say, for example, there was a big kerfuffle um, when it was found out that people were keeping live versions of of various dangerous viruses in containment units in America. And they were were messing with them and altering them to see how they might alter their DNA and, and how they may replicate. And the idea was that if this ever got out, People could die of a brand new transferable disease that no one would have a cure for. And yet that obviously didn't happen because people were smart enough to keep the genie in the bottle. And is that not something that we would expect of technologists, that they would always keep a failsafe for technologies that limit the parameters and power of of a supercomputer that may accidentally
1: wipe us out? Well, I think that's a really good point. And, And in some sense, the very fact that we are having this conversation is a sign of... Our own human intelligence, right? That we are sitting here talking about something that even the most kind of optimistic slash pessimistic people don't think will be a problem for 50 years. That we're sitting around debating it and thinking about, okay, this might be a problem. Let's try and think about how we could contain a technology like this and what the potential threats might be and all these issues. It's a little bit like, you know, the industrialists sitting around in 1800 going like, wow, all these steam engines are fantastic, but we are outputting a little bit of carbon into the atmosphere, and that could be a problem in 250 years. So we should probably think about how we design these technologies. No one did that in 1800 because people couldn't think ahead that far. And now, because of... Well,
0: well, I mean, not that output, but there is definitely cases where we have imagined problems in the future. I mean, for example, there's a UN space sort of convention that says a bunch of things that you cannot do in space. Uh, For example, if you know that there's a potential for life, you cannot go there in case you infect it. I mean, that's why when we found water on certain planets, we had to stop. And so there is evidence of human beings thinking about things before they know fully the intentions of what they're
1: doing. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's another great example of what I'm saying is that that's a relatively new ability, that there aren't a lot of examples of that in 1500, say, (laughs) you know, like being able to project forward and anticipate problems that haven't yet happened. And so that's the good news. We've got time to think about this and we're thinking about it. And so maybe we will be smart enough to be able to contain this thing. But the other question, though, the thing that's challenging about it is, that we think of intelligence on the spectrum of, you know, kind of human intelligence, right? We think that the spectrum is basically, you know, the village idiot on one side and Einstein on the other. And that seems like a huge gap between the village idiot and Einstein. But compared to a mouse, say, or even worse, you know, a bacterium, the difference between Einstein and the village idiot is incredibly minimal. It's they are two insanely smart people, way smarter than the mouse. You know, the mouse can't Hmm. comprehend the difference between Einstein and the village idiot. And what potentially could happen with these machines is that particularly as they advance on kind of, you know, exponential speeds, they'll hit that Einstein limit and then they'll just push way past it. And we'll be like the mouse trying to understand Einstein. And, trying to restrain Einstein and keep Einstein, you know, inside the box. And um, it'll be like the mouse trying to engineer human history to prevent the invention of mousetraps, right? It just can't happen. The mouse isn't smart enough. So we'll be in the position of the mouse at that point. And so that's the fear that we will unlock this kind of new cognitive power that will just race on past us. And we won't even be able to kind of imagine how smart it's become because it's on this extraordinary kind of accelerating intelligence path. So that's why I think people are starting to be concerned about this. Stephen Johnson, author of How We Got To Now. Always fun
0: uh, having a chat with you. Thank you very much for coming on. That was really fun.